If you have your Bibles, open them with me to Second Peter. On this very, very full life and week in our church, and we're delighted uh, for all of you to join us today. Uh, we begin a um, new place in the Scriptures this morning. Second uh, Peter. We'll be moving through it through the rest of the summer. I encourage you to memorize this little book, three short chapters. Um, it'd be a great blessing to you. We really want to just introduce things today and say some general words that will set us up for the powerful words that God's going to have us as we continue through the book. Second Peter chapter 1, stand with me as we read just the first two verses and then one other verse in the book uh, this morning. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then one further verse. I want to go to the very end of the book and notice how there's a theme here in verse 2, how it is what's on Peter's heart all the way through. It ends the book with, in verse 18, chapter 3, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So, Father, we uh, come so thankful to lift our hearts in worship, to take even the words of your book and to, to echo them back to you this morning in honor and glory to our Savior and to your kind work for us and to our hope in you. Now, Father, we pray that you would ready our hearts and use even our praise and our time together to prepare us to hear from you, that we might come really crying out, Lord, speak to me, change me. Move in me. Take away a sense of satisfaction or lethargy or, or anything that would keep me from being quickened by your word. And then do what you desire to do with us. Lord, take this word this morning from a weak messenger. May it be a coal that touches our lips and transforms our lives and produces in us hearts that say, Lord, here am I, send me. Father, we pray for any who would hear these words this morning who do not know this matchless Savior, our Lord and God, Jesus Christ, have not found in Him the salvation and the grace and the peace that changes everything. We pray today they would see their sin and their need, that they would see the uselessness and fruitlessness to a life where they try to justify themselves and work for anything of merit before you, but they would humbly receive forgiveness and life anew at the cross of Jesus Christ. And they might even leave this time of hearing of you as their Lord and Savior. That is the work you do, must do, and we ask you to do it among us even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. Obviously, this is a letter from Simeon Peter. If you're going to memorize the book, that's where you start. The first two words are Simeon Peter. We're more familiar with the name Simon Peter, we're talking about the same person. Simeon is simply the Aramaic uh, version, the Aramaic form of the name Simon. Simeon is what Peter's mother probably called him when he was a baby. Um, the name Simeon, of course, traces its all the, way, all the way back to the second son of Jacob, the second tribe of Israel, the tribe of Simon, uh, Simeon, and it is... Um, a very popular name in the first century. I was uh, talking to my wife, who's a famous Simon we know. I came up with Sam, Simon Cowell. You get that one, you know. Um, 
um, Simon or Simeon Boliviar. I can't do French, Spanish rather. I, uh, but famous, I know there's a new uh, South American uh, leader there and, and, and hero. And that's about, well, I came up with another one that my wife disqualified. I said, what about Simon and Garfunkel? She said, no, that's his last name, is Paul. So I don't know. So, But Simon was a very, very popular name in the first century. In the New Testament, I'll leave this to you. I'd really like to just show you how smart I am by showing how I found all of them. But there are 11 Simons in the New Testament. Very, very important name. We're going to focus on the one that's the best known name, this one that is Simon Peter. Um, Peter then greets, and more than greets, lays out the purpose of his letter in verse 2. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The words grace and peace are very common in the New Testament. They become almost a standardized greeting. Almost every letter of the New Testament uses that phrase. But it's not just a uh, a perfunctory words. They are words filled with the very heart and soul of what it means to live the Christian life. The grace of God, which has made everything possible, that, that, that God, without any merit on our part or anything we deserve, has given us what we needed. That grace that's seen most in Jesus now is not only something we receive, but it's meant to flow and transform our lives in everything we do. And the peace is the word shalom, that, that Old Testament sense of, of the wellness and the hope and the vigor that comes in a life that's right with God. It's a picture of the whole of the Christian life. And clearly, Peter has in mind for us to grow, to be multiplied. And it's not just that he says, you have these things. He says, I want them to be multiplied in your life. I want them to abound and become more and more in your life. And clearly, this, this thought, you're going to see it repeated in verses 3 and 4 we get to next week. But this is the very idea that is, is at the heart of Second Peter, so much that he, he even repeats it at the end, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when he comes to the end of the book. Now, the idea that the Christian life is, is one of growth and continual progress is the story of Peter's life. He is perhaps the best illustration. We know more of the details of Peter's walk with Christ than maybe any other disciple of Jesus in the Bible. You remember that, um, first of all, that growth all is centered around the person of Jesus Christ. Over and over and over through this book, Jesus, Peter will speak of Jesus, Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter sees his whole life in relationship to Jesus. He says, I am a servant and an apostle. There's no greater honor in this world than to be a servant of Jesus. And he starts there because in Jesus, when you know him, life is not about getting, getting a place where people honor you. It's where you serve others by giving your life away to them. And an apostle is simply an ambassador. It's another really form of servant. An apostle and an ambassador of the Lord doesn't give his message. He gives the message given to him by the king to deliver. And that's exactly how he sees himself. He says that the key to all this that God wants to do in their life is going to be uh, through the grace of the Lord Jesus. He says those he's writing are those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, just take a moment the end of verse 1 when he says the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. It is certainly not the first and only time in the New Testament that it's made this explicit. But it's never made more explicitly the complete divinity, the way understanding of New Testament Christians that Jesus was not only fully man, but fully God. 
grammarians say that the only really proper way to understand this phrase, the righteousness of our, and then that phrase is used to describe both God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is, Peter understood Jesus to be the Lord God. Now, the whole idea of the Trinity, the development of working that out and trying to make that more understandable, that would come later. But this is the kind of thing that it's based upon, a God who is fully man and fully God, it's seen in Jesus. Um, Peter's story is one that illustrates this. Everything in his life starts with Jesus. Um, his life is centered around Jesus, but he grows in Jesus. Um, you remember that Jesus said, that key point in his ministry. Matthew 16 says, Who do men say that I am? All kinds of answers are given, but Peter gets to the right answer. He says, Thou art the Son, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, Now you didn't figure that out, Peter. The Holy Spirit gave it to you, but he says, I'm going to build my church on that faith that I am indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. This work of God is his work. To live as a Christian is not something you accomplish by your efforts. It's not a try harder, do harder, work more, be more. It is a work of grace that God gives in our life. He says in verse 1, speaking to these Christians, you have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That word obtained is a very interesting word. The only time it's used exactly like that is to describe that at the cross of Jesus when his clothes were gambled away and by lot, one soldier ended up with the robe of Jesus. He obtained it, not by anything he did, but it was just, it happened. And the, when the apostles chose someone to replace Judas, the same word is used, that how they, this, this one was chosen to take that role. God ordained him, that is, he, he obtained this right of apostleship by God's doing and God's choosing. And he says the same is true for us. That those of us who are saved, who have a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is saving faith, it is first and foremost not what we have produced, not something we can take. We, we had to act on it. Faith has to be exercised, but it's something we have obtained as a gift of God. You know Paul's words in Ephesians, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that faith is not of yourselves. Your faith is a gift of God. So there's a sense in which the whole of Christian life is, is God's gift to you. He has done it. And it begins in a moment, a moment of faith where the righteousness of Christ is applied to us who are unrighteous, but forensically before the, the judgment seat of God, we are declared righteous by the gift of Jesus Christ. But that thing that begins in a moment, in an instant, but at its heart is all the work of God. There's nothing you can do to add. There's nothing of your goodness that you can produce to make you saved, to bring salvation to you. But it leads immediately into the second part of salvation, which is called sanctification. That is the rest of your life where it is still God's grace. It is still by faith. It is still God's work. But now you must join into that work as you grow in faith, as you grow and mature in Christ, which is at the heart of what Peter has to say here. We ought to grow in grace. Peter, who makes that marvelous pronouncement that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, in the very next verses as Jesus begins to talk about that he's going to go to a cross and he's going to die, he's going to be betrayed and all those sorts of things. And you remember Peter's response is he's not going to have anything to do with it. There is no way, Jesus, that that's going to be your lot. Matthew 16, 21, verse 22, the leader took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, you shall never happen to you. You remember Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your things on the minds of God. Peter had lots to learn. 
There's a lot of growth that would have to happen in his understanding, in his worldview, in his whole conception of what this was all about. You remember that Peter was so bold, so often quick to, to make pronouncements, but often failed to live up to them. You remember that famous day on Lake Galilee? We all learned about it in Sunday school, I hope. When Jesus comes to his disciples there in a storm at sea, and here comes Jesus walking across the waves. Peter and the others were terrified. They said, it's a ghost. They cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it's I. Don't be afraid. And of course, Peter's not going to be afraid. He's bold. Peter answered, said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on that water. Jesus said to him, come. And Peter got out of that boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. What a moment. But you remember the rest of the story, don't you? But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took him out of that water and said, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Peter, bold, courageous, and yet he often made an idiot of himself, didn't he? <laughs> have you been there? You know that story? That's part of the growth. That's part of the progress. That's part of how God works. Shortly before Jesus' crucifixion, he again brings them back as he had many times. Talks about the coming cross and how everyone's going to abandon him and desert him. And Peter says, ah, not me. No, 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 no. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fail. But he would. Jesus said he would. And he did. It would only be hours before when finally everyone is run and is hiding. And Peter would be unnerved by a little servant girl. They began to point him out as, you're one of that followers, that Jesus. And he says, I don't know what you mean. Later he said with an oath, I don't know. I don't even know this man. I know nothing about him. And the third time he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man. He's talking about Jesus. He would not be there at the cross. He'd be hiding out and cowering in fear. Three days later, Jesus is raised from the dead. And the word comes that the tomb is empty. And who's the first guy out the door? Peter, running to that empty tomb. He's joined by John. John gets to tell the story. And what do you know what John would give this detail? It's very appropriate on Sports Sunday. Both of them are running together, but the other disciple, that's John, he's getting to tell the story, and he has to include this detail. But the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. But what they saw that day would change their lives and change history. Jesus, of course, would again have a conversation with Peter, probably many of them. But remember that conversation where three times he had denied him and three times Jesus says, Simon, do you love me more than these? Peter says, Simon says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And indeed, feed his sheep he would. The time you get to the day of Pentecost and the fall of the Holy Spirit, Stephen stand, or, or, uh, Peter stands in the middle of Jerusalem among all those Romans and all those Jewish officials who had put Jesus to death. And Acts says, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice. He said, men of Israel, among many things, he said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. When he got through that sermon, the response of the, the people listening was, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, with the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 get saved. Now, everything else that Peter's going to talk about in this book, and it's calling us to grow and to mature, and all these things we're going to begin today, they all start, first of all, with that experience of coming to faith in Christ. 
You can know a lot about church. You can be religious all your life. But if you've never met Jesus, if you've never seen yourself and your sin, and never turned in repentance, then you missed it all. There was a point in Jesus' life where Peter realizes who Jesus is, and he falls before Jesus, and he says, Depart from me, Jesus. I have no business being in your presence. He saw his sin. I'm a sinful man. But once he saw that, then the offer of salvation comes as it comes to you. If you ever get to look at Jesus, you'll see what goodness is like, and you'll throw away the idea that you're good of yourself completely. But the moment you do that, if you'll repent and turn to Christ and receive his forgiveness, follow him, you do that through baptism, you profess him through baptism, you begin that journey, and everything else follows from there. Well, Peter continues to be a witness in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. He boldly pronounces Christ. God gives the apostles the special ability to perform miracles, to give them the authority of the word they're going to give. He faces threats, arrests. He faces a beating. He is imprisoned. He experienced all that, and he's bold throughout it. He corrects and challenges falsehoods that would try to, to kill the church from inside. He confronts Ananias and Sapphira. And then later in Samaria, he, connect, he, he deals with a guy named Simeon who thought you could buy and sell the Holy Spirit. Um, he ends up in a town of Lydia there in Palestine and does a great healing there. They hear about what he's done. And, and people over in Joppa has had a faithful member of their church. I used this story yesterday in our dear Janet Sutherland. We home with the Lord. She, this Tabitha reminds me of her. And she dies. And they're, they're grieving. And, and uh, they say, go get Peter. He's nearby. We've heard what he's done. And the authority Jesus gave him to even raise the dead. Maybe, maybe. And Peter comes. He prays. And the Lord is clearly gives the okay doesn't raise any preacher, doesn't raise any apostles, doesn't raise any of the bigwigs, but he takes his dear faithful servant and raises her to life. All those wonderful things God did through this, this man. Of course, it's the gospel spreading, it's resting not just to Jewish people, which these Jewish followers of Jesus understood, but, but somehow getting hold of the idea that the whole world could be saved by Jesus, that you didn't have to become a Jew but you, the whole world simply through faith in Christ alone that you could be saved. This was a, a mind-blowing thing. And God would have to work in Peter's heart because he couldn't get that either. God would give him a vision and an opportunity to deal with Cornelius, a, a Roman centurion, and, and see the, the work of God in that Gentile's life. And, and he would come to the conclusion, what God has made clean, you must not call common. He said... Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The work of the gospel goes forward. The great persecutor of the church, Saul, gets saved. Peter spends 15 days discipling Peter, discipling rather Saul. The gospel is exploding in Gentile communities. The church at Antioch is sending missionaries all over Turkey, Asia Minor. People are coming to faith in Christ. And it's just blowing the mind of all these Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem because they're not doing any of the Jewish rituals, any of the Jewish uh, ritualistic law. And it's Peter's in the middle of that struggle. They have a big church conference. I was at a big sort of church conference, the Southern Baptist Convention. Pretty raucous affair. I can understand this verse. And after there had been much debate... God did a work. Peter stood up and he settled the issue. He said, brothers, you may know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He has made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. So Peter leads the church in this great leap of seeing what the, the, the whole part. Remember, it started back with Abraham, that God's going to bless the whole world through the people of God. And now it's happening and they're having a hard time getting But Peter leads them to see that. But even Peter would struggle with it emotionally. 
He would later be at Antioch, and there he'd be fellowshipping, eating with Gentiles, eating bacon and pork and hot dogs, you know, I mean, and um, just be another Gentile, if you will. But then this group from Jerusalem shows up. He knows how they feel about him. He seems to separate himself and go to their table and not have anything to do with the Gentiles. And, and, and Paul is there, and he... He confronted him about it. He talks about it in Galatians. He said, Paul says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter. That's the other name for Peter. He says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The amazing thing, Peter, here's Peter, the head of the church, the guy who preached the sermon at Pentecost, who's raised people from life, and yet he still receives correction. He still receives a rebuke, if you will. In this letter we're reading, he will recognize Paul's apostleship and that the writings of Paul are Scripture. That's in his letter right here. He continues to grow and move in Christ. When he says to these believers, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, he was talking to people, calling them to experience exactly what had been the story of his life. The whole point of this book, to a great degree, is that that the life and the things of Christ, the grace and peace, the, the maturity of Christ would grow up in us. We're going to look at the dynamic of how that happens next week. And it is an amazing thing. And I really want to preach about it this morning, but I understand you don't want to stay till 2 o'clock. So. so let me just try to introduce you and set you up for what he's going to say. Let me do this by talking about a personal issue I have. I hate to go to the doctor. I got to be really, really sick to go to the doctor. I don't like the waiting room. I don't like those stupid magazines. I like that junk on the TV. I don't like having to wait. And then I don't like it when they call my name. (laughs) They're going to take me to a torture room. It starts with a scale. They're going to stand there and they're going to write numbers down, my numbers. And then they're going to take my temperature and my blood pressure and sit on a cold table and who knows what else. There's not a thing I like about it. Some skeptical nurse, he or she is going to start asking me, what's wrong? And no matter what I say, I know what they're thinking. You're not really sick. This isn't sick. What are you doing here wasting our... I know what they're thinking. It's just nothing pleasant about it for me. Of course, sometimes we go not because we're sick. We go for a physical. I don't like those either. (laughs) But we go because we care about our physical health. We believe sports and activities are important for for all of us, including our children, because they're to grow up physically as well as emotionally and mentally and spiritually. And this morning, I'm just simply telling you that Peter is writing to tell us that we are to grow up spiritually in the things of God. The Bible commands us to be healthy, growing Christians. The word health is used metaphorically about the life we have in the spiritual realm. The word usually that is not usually translated health, but there is a word uh, that is used that's talking about spiritual health, and it's the word sound. The word sound comes from a Greek combination of words that we get the idea of hygiene. Paul writes, remember when we were back in Timothy, about the importance of sound, healthy doctrine, getting the right truth, the right way of thinking about life, of seeing things right, produces a healthy life spiritually and otherwise. He writes to Timothy, to Titus rather, about the same thing. Titus was a missionary to the island of Crete. And Paul quotes a kind of famous joke. I think it was a joke uh, that, that he, people on Crete said. Titus 1.12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. 
That's not the Chamber of Commerce of the Islands of Crete favorite verse. But that's, he says, that's what Cretans themselves say about themselves. And then it's amazing what Paul says next in verse 12. This testimony is true. Now, Timothy, Titus, you're trying to grow Christians there. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Healthy. The problem with heresy is that a heretic has rejected healthy doctrine. He's believed poisonous, unhealthy, false things that wreck life. He goes on to say, you've got to help to be healthy, Titus. Titus 2.1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. The Bible over and over speaks of the idea that we are to be growing and we're to be healthy. You know the first psalm? That person who is, doesn't hang out with the crowd that mocks the Lord and is, is, walks in evil ways, that they're rather people who focus their heart and mind on the Lord and the Lord of the law. They, they meditate day and night. What are they like? He says they are like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. It does, and all that it does, he prospers. So the same way you have a healthy fruit uh, tree, so the Christian life is to be healthy. It's supposed to yield fruit. You notice the contrast in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17, 5, thus says the Lord curses the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. This is what he's like. He says he's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. Some of you have probably planted a tree at your house and it was looking good, then suddenly and there you go. That's you if you're not right with the Lord. He says... The opposite is, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its root by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Pictures of healthy plants, of healthy farming, are the idea of the picture of Christians. You know, the most famous passage about that is John 15. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Stay connected to me, abide in me, and you will do what? You will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you're going to wither and die. You can do nothing. If you don't know the New Testament book of Galatians, particularly chapter 5, you ought to read it. It has two important lists in it. One are called the deeds of the flesh. The way what ends up coming out of us, the most well-mannered, the most cultured of us, but you let us try to live apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, and there's a whole list of things that, that show up sooner or later in our lives, in our family, in our conversations, in our business. It's an ugly list. And you will probably find yourself in it quite well. But he said there's such a contrast when you live in the, in the center of God's Spirit. When you live by the power of the Holy Spirit, it produces something very different. But he doesn't call it the deeds of the Spirit. He called this the deeds of the flesh. But over here, he doesn't call it the deeds of the Spirit. He calls it the what? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what flows out naturally when we're walking with Christ and growing in Christ. This is what Peter says in his first letter. He says, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. <coughs> I've been around a few infants recently. I want to tell you, I've been reminded of just how tenacious a hungry baby can be. He will not shut up. Until he gets that mama's milk. He says that's what we ought to be like. We ought to be hungering for growth. That's the way we grow, by God's word. 
Peter says in 2 Peter 1.5, we'll get to it in a week or two, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. These are the things that will flow out of a life that's faithfully living and growing in Christ. He goes on to say, if these qualities are yours and increasing, that is, they're growing, you don't get these and they just freeze. They, they continually grow. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. We are to grow and increase in these things. The Bible rebukes unhealthy Christians, people who are not spiritually vigorous and growing and fruit-bearing. Book of Hebrews, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You still need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have by their powers had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Right writer of Hebrews said, there's so much I want to teach you, but I can't get to that because you haven't even got the basics. You, you ought to be over here, but in fact, you're over here. A one-year-old, we expect to just be learning how to walk and form words, but we don't expect that to be truth of 12-year-olds or 18-year-olds. You ought to be in a completely different place, but you haven't grown. You're still spiritually babies. Letter of Jude, Jude writes, but you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Be edified, be strengthened. This is not just true of us as individuals. It's what ought to be true of us as a church. A lot of times we talk about church growth. And of course we want to reach people and bring the gospel to many people. But when the New Testament talks about church growth, it's talking about maturity, about holiness, becoming like Christ. The whole fourth chapter of Ephesians is about the truth, about the church as a whole, about local congregations. He says, speak the truth in love. We're to grow up in all aspects into him who's the head, even Christ. For whom the whole body is being fitted, held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each part, causes the growth of the body for the building of itself in love. It just takes a few members of the body who aren't growing, who aren't maturing, and the whole body gets crippled. Now, my word to you this morning, and the reason I want you to hunger for what God is going to say to us in Second Peter, is that spiritual health is not an option for the Christian. I think, I think for some of us, we think this way. And I want to I forever take it out of your thinking. The Bible never puts its stamp of approval or authority on the idea that there are going to be some kinds of Christians, some Christians are going to be healthy and growing and maturing and advancing in the gospel, and there are going to be others not so much. They may be sick and unhealthy, but that's okay because we're all different. That is not okay. That is not an option. There is not a biblical category for, that says it's okay to be in a state where you're not continually growing and becoming more like Christ. You do not, as a Christian, have the privilege, the right, or the calling to stay where you're at and just plant yourself there. I remember when I was about a 14-year-old boy and the Bible was coming alive in my heart. I read the Sermon on the Mount and I, I was stunned. I must have heard it before, but I don't think I'd ever heard it when Jesus said those words in Matthew 5:48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Now, you've heard many preachers explain why that doesn't mean sinless perfection. So, but I'm telling you, Jesus was serious about what he said. The calling on your life is to become perfect. C.S. Lewis, as so often the case, nails this perfectly. He says the practical upshot about this calling of Jesus to be perfect comes down to this. This is in Mere Christianity. If you haven't read the book Mere Christianity, you've got to do it. He says, on the one hand, God's demand for perfection need not discourage you in the least in your present attempts to be good or even in your present failures. Each time you fall, he'll pick you up again. And he knows perfectly well that your own efforts are never going to bring you anywhere near perfection. On the other hand, you must realize from the outset that the goal towards which he is beginning to guide you is absolute perfection. And no power in the whole universe except yourself can prevent him from taking you to that goal. That is what you are in for. And it is very important to realize that if we do not, then we're very likely to start pulling back and resisting him after a certain point. He said, I think that many of us, when Christ has enabled us to overcome one or two sins that were an obvious nuisance, they're inclined to feel, though we do not put it into words, that we're now good enough. He has done all we wanted him to do. And we should be obliged if he would now leave us alone. As we say, I never expected to be a saint. I only wanted to be a decent, ordinary chap. And we imagine when we say this that we're being humble. He says, this is a fatal mistake. He says, of course, we never wanted and never asked. We made into the sort of creatures he's going to make us into. But the question is not what we intended ourselves to be, but what he intended us to be when he made us. That's the trajectory you're on if you're in the Christ. And that's where your growth is going to lead. I know what you're sitting there thinking, get ready, get ready. He's going to ask me, all right, well, am I growing? That's too, I'm not going to ask you that question. It's too nebulous. I'm just going to ask you, how have you grown the last year? What are you planning? Where do you recognize today? Where can you say, I know this is where I need to grow? What areas of your life that are not like Jesus, and you know they're not like Jesus, and you've been honest about it, and you said, Lord, I want you to be working in my life. So the kind of father I am, the kind of mother I am, the kind of worker I am, the kind of child I am, the kind of senior adult and grandfather I am, where do I need to grow this year? Can you put your finger on those sins, on those areas that keep coming back up where you know it's a blot to the the cause of Christ? And have you said, Lord, my need right now is to kill that sin. It needs to be, the power of your gospel needs to be stuck to the heart of that thing to set me free and get that poison out of my life. What grace, what character of Jesus can you say, I know that's not me, and it needs to be? Are you planning to grow? Are you seeking to grow? Are you, you hungry to grow in Christ? You know, babies, no matter how you treat them almost, they're going to grow no matter. They just grow. Look at them. <laughs> they grow. Spiritually, it's not necessarily that way. It's sort of tragedy. You can get to a place and just stop growing. Many people would say the great curse on American Christianity, we got a lot of people, they got born again. And then they stopped growing 10, 15, 20, 25 years, and they're still in the nursery. And it's kind of disgusting, growing up people in the nursery, changing their diapers. Let me say this. The Bible challenges us to examine ourselves and our health and our growth. The Bible will challenge you to look at yourself and do just what I'm asking you to do today. Look at where you're at. And remember this. We know it's true. If you know any theology, you know it's true. But most of us don't think it's true of us. It's simply this. We are self-deceiving and self-justifying creatures. 
We know Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I know that's true about you. Do I know it's true about me? Because it is. Again, Hebrews, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. You know what that none of you includes? That means preachers. That means leaders of the church. That means big-time successful businessmen and Christians and, and, and people who are leaders and, and stalwarts and looked up to. That means all of us. That means all of us. Be careful. Take a look. Examine. We are self-deceiving, self-justifying creatures. The only way to remedy that is to challenge ourselves to look and examine and evaluate our own spiritual health and growth. Paul went to the church at Corinth. Bless his heart. Church of Corinth. Lord, call me to pastor any church in the world, but please don't call me to pastor the church at Corinth. What a mess that place was. Paul ended up writing four letters, spent a lot of time there. The fourth letter, which we call 2 Corinthians, there were still people defying his pastoral authority. Wouldn't be molded. Wouldn't conform to Christ. So he writes in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I believe in the eternal security of the believer. But I tell you, the Bible also says Christians ought to examine themselves and look for the evidences that they really are. Peter's going to say the same thing in this letter, verse 10 of chapter 1. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. I'm calling you this morning and this summer and these days to look at your life. I know as I say that, there's some of you I don't need to say that to because some of you look at your, you're so introspective and you're so focused on, on your own condition and many of you, I, I'm not good enough, I'm not righteous enough and you, you're just so hard on yourself and, and sometimes it's even to the sinful preoccupation with yourself and rather than taking the promises of Christ and of, of His grace and, and standing on that and then moving out in service to others, you, you just, I can't do anything, I'm just not worthy. Of, and, and you're on that side of the category. But I think there's more people on the other side of the category that said, look, buddy, years and years ago I got saved. I made my profession of faith. I joined the church. I got baptized. Now, don't you ask me to examine myself. Don't you ask me to look at my heart. Don't you ask me to raise any questions. Look, no, no, no. I am safe and secure from all alarm, and I'm happy the way I am, and I don't plan to change. I'm telling you on the basis of the New Testament and the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to do exactly what Psalm says. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting because there's still a lot of growing for you to do. And quite honestly, if you're happily satisfied and don't tend to grow anymore, then I think you've got real reasons to look real carefully to find out if you've got anything real in the first place. Now, here's how the Christian life works, and I'll be done with this. Thank you for your patience. When you get saved, when Jesus, the light of the world, comes into your heart, it's like being in a dark room. And as the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, opens your heart, and you believe in him, suddenly a light comes on, and you see all kinds of things. You see things right in front of you. You see yourself. You see things around you. And it's not pretty. You see your sin. You see that it's worse than you ever imagined. That the things you call good were, were all filled with things that weren't so good. 
And as you continue to grow in Christ and mature in Him, He gives you more light. And you, you, you think you make all this progress, and suddenly the light goes up, and you see a whole bunch more stuff, and you go, oh, there's so much to deal with, so much of me, like, 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 like Christ. Now, so many places that, that need to be changed, and, and the light brightens, and you see more, and you see more, and you see more, until, until the work of Christ continues all the way to get to heaven, and you conform to the image of Jesus. And Peter will tell us how to do that, how that process works. But nothing's going to happen if you've already decided, no, I'm fine like I am. Leave me alone. And you come to church every week and you put on your sermon shield. Go ahead, say what you want, preacher. And they're going to bounce right off me. You're not going to mess with my thinking. I got this all worked out. I'm telling you, that's a dangerous place to be. Get out of that place and say, Holy Spirit, Word of God, do your work. There's more work to be done. I know it. And I'm willing to examine honestly where I'm at, face that truth by the power of your word, and then by your resources and your grace, I'm ready to keep growing. I'm, not, I'm still far away from being like Jesus, but I want to be like him more and more every day. Is that your heart? Is that your heart? Is that your heart? I pray it is. And I pray we'll look for God to do that work in our life. Let's stand together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the the work that you started in that day of salvation for us. We pray again for those who have never even started this process, have never come to know Jesus. Lord, they would see how glorious and good he is, so good that he would take his perfect life and give it in our place and bear our sin on the cross. It's at that cross that we not only see his suffering, but we see the wickedness that it took his death to forgive people like us. Help us to see that and then turn to him and trust him and follow him. I pray for boys and girls who this week made serious steps in that journey and who profess their need for salvation. And I pray that in the days to follow, they will follow up on that with their moms and dads and with, with leaders from your church and we would help them get established in this walk with Christ. But pray, Father, I pray that they and all of us would understand that that's just the beginning. There's a long way to go and your intent in commanding us and expecting us to move with you, becoming healthier and healthier, stronger and stronger, more like Jesus every day. Use these days, use this your word to put us on that trajectory. For Jesus' sake, I pray.